Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest for this episode is Aaron Rochetta, a videographer based out of Georgia in the US. Now, Aaron's story is an interesting one because it is one of community learning, and it is one of community learning based around a series of computers called the Amiga. The Amiga in the US was known for democratizing the video industry. In the UK, it also fed into a series of bedroom developers, people who in the 1980s were encouraged via computers like the Spectrum and the Acorn to make their own games, to make their own software, and to interact with technologies in a way where, you know, maybe today we don't do it so much. You know, we do have things now like the Raspberry Pis and stuff like that, but they build upon that generational culture that was started way back when. If you want to know a little bit more about the Amiga, then go to my website and look at some of the blog posts that I've done. Otherwise, for now, I will leave it to Aaron and I will speak to you again at the end of the episode. If Doctor Who isn't enough for you, Cardiff Wales has another claim to fame. It's the home of Aeon Technology Limited. That's a-eon.biz. Aeon Technology is creating Amiga One computers. And around that, they are also developing out softwares like ImageFX, Personal Paint, Octomed. They also have Amistore.net, which is their developer platform. Anyway, if you're interested in any kind of computing, and particularly Amiga-based computing, go over to a-eon.biz. That's a-eon.biz. Hello, sticker lovers. Why don't you head over to stickerrobot.com? That's sticker with one R, obot with no R, dot com. They can also basically print out any forms of stickers that you want. Die cut stickers, clear stickers, business card stickers, round stickers, any kind of stickers you want. Go over to stickerrobot.com. pvpubs.co.uk It's more than a catchy website name. It's the home of Geomatics World and GIS Professional. If you have any geospatial needs or any interest in the geospatial industry, why not go over to pvpubs.co.uk and why don't you reach out to them if you're interested in advertising with them or wanting to put an article in one of their publications. Anyway, that's pvpubs.co.uk. Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and I'm here with Aaron Rochetta, who was a former president of the uh, Atlanta Amiga Club and also known as the Vidiot Savant as well. So, Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Wonderful. So, tell me more about your story with the Amiga. Oh, where to start? Um, I worked in uh, television in the video profession. Um, worked uh, early on uh, apprenticing at a television station in Salt Lake City and uh, worked my way up from run, from fixing lights and building sets uh, to running camera and uh, on up through various ranks of the, uh, or various different positions in the, uh, in the industry until I was eventually a, a director. Um, I took the approach that if you're going to be a director, you gotta, uh, you got to understand everything underneath you that you're actually calling the shots for. But um, that aside, um, I was working in uh, uh, high-end post-production, and uh, I heard about this computer that came along that was video compatible, and that opened up the doorway for me to affordably uh, play with and experiment with video art and uh, um, and, and video production uh, on a on a home kind of basis. Uh, so I was immediately attracted to the machine, and I. Uh, 
dove in very quickly with the, uh, bought my first machine in 87. I bought one of the 2000s. I waited until the second generation came out, uh, something that was more expandable and, uh, and not quite as tricky to run. And uh, when I bought my 2000, um, I uh, uh, immediately got into Sculpt 3D and, uh, and, and playing with that and got into uh, uh, the um, uh, Genlocks because now I had my own personal character generator and I could uh, and, and an overlay tool. And, uh, and I dove into Amiga Atlanta, uh, the user group, local user group, uh, because uh, uh, it was a community that I could ed- learn from. And so I, I learned everything I kind of know about computers from that. I did not have any formal education uh, coming into it. Uh, but um, I'm a techie. I'm fascinated by technology. And it was right up my alley to just take that Amiga and, and, and run with it and learn everything I could about it. And uh, fortunately, it was a, such a sophisticated machine and had uh, it was so groundbreaking in, in the things that it brought to the computer, desktop computing, that uh, my knowledge became quite deep, I think. So some of the conversations we had prior to this interview, you mentioned that you've seen the computer as having three main prongs. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, um, the, the Amiga came on the scene in 1985. That's also the year that the Free Software Foundation was established when Richard Stallman started um, uh, ref- uh, or reprogramming uh, uh, Unix tools in a, in a clean env- clean environment, where it was free from the licensing that was uh, inhibiting his use of uh, of, of computer technology, uh, and so um, one of the strongest prongs that I think the Amiga had an advantage in was in the operating system. It was a true multitasking, priority preemptive, message based operating system that had a lot of similarities to uh, to Unix. Um, the the main uh, computing environment of the time, uh, the so you and along with that uh, burgeoning free software uh, uh, thinking, uh, you had a lot of incredible programs come out for it. So that's that's prong one is the operating system, and that and the strengths that that did, and the and the, and the opportunities it gave for uh, all the people who were interested in hacking and and. Uh, writing free software programs uh, of the time. Second prong was, um, I think, the uh, certainly the gaming, uh, because it was a true first true multitasking, priority preemptive, you know, um, uh, machine. Uh, the 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 hardware design uh, of using multiple processors really opened it up to be uh, the first multimedia machine. So you could do sound and have the sound operating independently of the clocks of the video and independently of the input and output because of the multiprocessor design. Uh, so gaming was definitely a big, big strength of the machine. Uh, it was the first one that was really, really had uh, the kind of capabilities uh, to, to support what you need to do a game. You know? uh, and then, of course, the video compatibility. And uh, along with my 2000, my 2000 computer eventually got uh, got a video toaster put in it because uh, it was a rather groundbreaking video machine because it w- it made it made uh, home video production uh, a much more real proposition because just because of the price point. Um, and so I've I've used uh, the video toaster in professional environments. 
Uh, I used it in 96 to um, edit uh, videos for the Paralympics presentations. Uh, so um, even though I was in a, in, a, in a highly sophisticated video environment at the time, um, uh, it allowed me... Uh, oh, no, I insisted on... <laughs> I insisted on, on being allowed to do it uh, with my toaster flyer system because of the nature of the of the project uh, doing the interstitials in these in these pieces um, uh, just lent itself to that to that tool and uh, so I was able to haul my Amiga into the, the the studio and and use it to do all the editing for the uh, for the Paralympics videos. Okay, and so this is an interesting one because obviously you can tell I'm from the UK and Europe. Gaming was very much a thing with the Amigas. You know, the the video toaster wasn't, we knew of it, but it wasn't really used because it was mainly NTSC. Mm. So how much involvement did you have with the Atlanta Olympics using an Amiga? And also, can you talk more about the impact of the video culture and how the Amiga helped change that? Mm. Well, actually, when you talk about the Olympics, there's, an, there's a great story because the, uh, the 96 Olympics, of course, were here in Atlanta. Um, and... Uh, there was a lot of competition amongst the various cities to, to get the Olympics, win the Olympic bid. And there was a group at uh, Georgia Tech. I wish I could remember the name of the head of that, um, but he was an Amiga 500 fan. Uh, he uh, <laughs> he knew it, yeah, and he knew the Amiga capabilities. And again, because it was such a groundbreaking machine um, and, and so media-oriented, he used it as the center for controlling a whole multimedia presentation uh, system um, it in, that involved uh, three synchronized uh, video projectors, uh, um, audio tracks synced to that with uh, uh, dozens of languages on them, uh, and um, uh, the uh, uh, a, a presentation selector that was actually a 3D uh, translucent model that was highlighted from the background and such. And all of this was coordinated by the Amiga 2000. And uh, and I remember the programmer's name. The programmer's name was Toder Fay, who wrote a rather incredible um, uh, audio program called Bars and Pipes, uh, that uh, that was very popular for for the Amiga as well. But uh, he he got the whole thing synced up and running. Uh, the only other computer part in the in the system was the uh, was a Macintosh, and the Macintosh was used uh, for its uh, to, to highlight, backlight the 3D translucent model. And of course, uh, the biggest failing, uh, the, the biggest fight that Amiga ever had to do was, was, was getting proper PR and promotion and, and proper marketing done for it. Mm. And so all the press was, uh, said that the whole thing was done by a Macintosh. The Macintosh was a dummy projector, and the Amiga was running the whole show. But because of the way the marketroids rigged it, you know, and, and the way the mainstream media, you know, rigged it, uh, it, it, it never, the Amiga was never recognized for, for actually winning the Olympic bid here. Because wow. that whole multimedia presentation showed that we had the technical capabilities to, to, to do, pull this off for the, for the Olympic Committee. Yeah, so it could have been the mother of all demos. It could have been the mother of all demos. Is is that you know we it was used to create and present the uh, uh, the Olympic bid, and uh, it won the Olympics for our city. So I guess as like I said before, I'd like to know more about the impact on the video community in the U.S. that the Amiga had, 
And also, I think it would be useful to, you know, as somebody that was in the scene at the time, if you could talk about the Amiga landscape, like, so where the main clubs were, who was doing what, you know, people like Fred Fish and their impact, sort of stuff like that. Fred Fish was part of that uh, prong number one, that, that operating system, that Unix-like operating system. And so Fred Fish was from that Unix environment, and uh, um, he was... He, was fascinated by the programming possibilities for working in uh, with the Amiga, and uh, he took it on himself to just kind of collect uh, the work of, of uh, his associates, uh, his friends, uh, people he knew in the free software community that were writing programs uh, and and releasing the source code for those programs so that other people could learn from them. So he saw it a great as a great tool to expand. I think. Uh, putting words in his mouth, but uh, uh, I think he saw it as a great tool to expand the whole programming, uh, learning, and education uh, environment. And uh, so he, he produced um, over a thousand floppy disks worth of, worth of software. I've, uh, one of the few things I retained from the Amiga 30th con- uh, convention was I, I made sure I hung on to my Fred Fish disks. Yeah. <laughs> so I still got all that CD software up there. Um, and... Uh, um, the, as far as the user groups go, um, the, these different uh, communities came together very strongly around the uh, around the Amiga, the gamers, uh, but especially the video community here. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I served as the video savant of Amiga Atlanta for most of my tenure with the group, um, as well as serving as the president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, and uh, ad infinitum. So you're the Renaissance man, really. <laughs> well, no, just, uh, I, I, again, I learned everything I understood about computing and this whole, you know, um, this whole landscape opened up to me uh, from my involvement with the user group. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a very strong uh, believer that no one is self-educated. You know, everybody is community educated. Yeah. Even if you're, even if you're off in a closet reading a book, somebody wrote the darn book that you're, you know, studying with. You know, um, so in that tone, I always felt very strongly that I needed to give back to those communities, and uh, so I took on those leadership roles and, and devoted the time to to make the uh, the Amiga user group a, a, a more um, a more viable or a more helpful and, and useful um, community for people. And that's why I served in all those different different positions. So who who made up the Atlanta Amiga user group? Well, the most notable name is probably Joe Torrey. He uh, was um, very active. The original group was a small uh, cadre of um, uh, computer uh, science students at uh, Georgia Tech. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, Ron Heimbigner is one name that comes to mind. Um uh, there, there are others. I should have a, I should have them written down to share with you, actually. Uh, uh, but uh, there, were, there were a few very strong uh, players, and they, uh, they were, you know, uh, just hardcore dedicated to, the, to that. They saw it as a great tool that helped them learn uh, in that community, and so they, they created the community to expand that learning. And uh, they, and they initialized the club. Joe Torrey was an early member, great hacker, and. Uh, um, just really understood electronics, largely uh, community educated himself, though he would say self-educated. But <laughs> yeah, um, uh, but uh, he uh, um, he was he was an early driving force, and and later he, he uh, 
actually was hired by Gateway when the Amiga was in transition after its demise, uh, after Commodore's demise. Uh, he actually w- was hired by Gateway for a while to, to try and get their, their tech off the ground with, the, with a revised version vision of the Amiga. Um, and uh, but that core group kind of kind of held together, and then we had uh, lots of other volunteers over the years that were really great. Uh, had interesting projects. One of the early projects was a, a ray tracing project where they actually modeled things uh, by numbers uh, and uh, for uh, Epic. Ray. It was called the Epic Ray Project, and then they um, the club got together and uh, a few of the guys uh, generated uh, 3D models based uh, entirely you know lists of numbers. Numbers uh, for for points in space, and uh, would it had the AAI logo and a uh, and and uh, uh, some kind of bouncing object. I think it was a bouncing ball, uh, mirror ball, because it was ray trace, of course. And then uh, you um, uh, and and you did a. Uh, 3D fly around of the of the of the of the logo with about with a anyway with all the colors and everything. Um, but the point was that they at the time you know each frame was taking you know several days to render, <laughs> but they distributed it and and eventually we assembled the Amiga Epic Ray video. Uh, I was able to help uh, with the final editing process of getting all these single frames that had been recorded onto floppy disks actually onto video in a reasonable quality state. And, oh my God. <laughs> 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 but it was it was like a, f- a, f- a five second fly around but it took a couple of years to get everybody to wow. <laughs> rent but do the distributed rendering by sneaker net on floppies <laughs> <laughs> but that was great that was one project um bob castro uh is a is a was a member of the club uh, again served in a lot of officer positions um uh but he he came from the video uh, uh realm as well he came from uh Georgia, um, I won't say Georgia State, but it's not, uh, it uh, came from uh, University of Georgia in uh, Athens, uh, where he was uh, working in video there, and he did some interesting um, uh, stuff using high-end, the the high-end video equipment he had there. He used, uh, early on with an Amiga 1000, he used uh, uh, a... um, a professional video camera to do uh, some captures with uh, just the uh, not the frame grabber the Digiview. Oh, okay. Okay, he did it. He did a Digiview scan, and the Digiview scan that you see of the of the uh, model with the red scarf wrapped around her face. Yeah, yeah. That was a Bob Castro scan. Oh wow. Yeah, he did that uh, way back when at UGA, and uh, yeah. But he also, uh, at one point, he they were doing a, a project. So, uh, with an early, early, early version of, uh, before it was called Lightwave. What was that? I can't remember, recall exactly what it was originally called, but the precursor to Lightwave. Uh, and you had to model by numbers. And so he put out all the points, modeling the entire um, uh, uh, iconic uh, central um, uh, building of of the Georgia State campus, the historical, you know. Uh, um, uh, landmark building and uh, with a big clock tower and spire and everything and he modeled that in um, uh, and animated that uh, with, an, with a very early version of uh, uh, of Lightwave wow. yeah Incredible. yeah and uh, yeah and did, did a fly around and it was actually used by the university as part of their promotions it wasn't a ray trace so it didn't take quite so forever to uh, to render but <laughs> yeah. but it was a major project and uh he later on he was very involved he was a very much a um, 
or still is, very much a uh, fan of the space program. And uh, so he, he did a couple other little documentary pieces, uh, like the way NASA used the Amigas, uh, banks and banks of Amigas, to uh, track telemetry for uh, uh, certain rocket launches. Which is actually on YouTube as of 2015 when we did this interview. So yeah, exactly. You can go yeah. see that, yeah. It was, uh, and and uh, he also had done a fair amount of documentation of the uh, space program and such uh, as kind of a sideline, but he uses his Amigas as a tool in doing that uh, throughout. Uh, to, if nothing else, to log footage and, and uh, do offline cuts and things like that back in the good old days of analog video editing when, when real men video edited. <laughs> <laughs> real men like me. <laughs> so, I, yeah. Anyway, on that note. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so one thing that's kind of coming out here is that basically the university scene at the, in the Atlanta area, because there are a lot of universities in this area, mm-hmm. it fed directly into the Amiga community then. I find that quite that quite interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know if it was the case as much in other cities. Uh, of course, uh, in Silicon Valley, you had that, you had a lot of professional community there that, that could could draw on it. But uh, it, the, the big thing here was um, uh, with the universities was the club was started through the, through the uh, technical university, Georgia Tech. Um, and it, you know, it lent a certain credibility to it. <laughs> yeah. I said that, and it, and it also gave us facilities. I mean, we um, uh, we met for years and years and years on the on the Georgia Tech campus, um, uh, and we had a nice uh, amphitheater room, and and uh, the early guys had figured out how to hack into the projection system so we could use the projector uh, for our meetings. Um, and uh, I don't think they ever ever got a official sanction to actually be using the room one of the one of the early uh, members was also in the uh, in the chemistry department so we used to meet in the uh, in, a, in a chemistry building classroom and uh, uh, but he left early on and you know graduated and moved on yeah. but they kept using the room and nobody ever complained so <laughs> we were kind of we were kind of there by accident almost you know yeah. <laughs> Seek forgiveness instead of ask permission, and if they don't ask about permission, don't worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> but it was great, but it, but it provided a, a, a great facility for us. We often had attendance of, you know, um, you know 150 people, uh, maybe even 200 people in that amphitheater uh, for, for meetings. Um, all of them in, interested in some aspect of it, but again, a lot of video community uh, was there. Maybe that's because I'm a video guy myself, so mm-hmm. I, I saw a lot of that that connection. But video computer science students, people who wanted to learn programming, or were fascinated by the technology. Mm-hmm. It just touched on so many different bases and, and and brought them together. So I mean, in terms of user interaction, then, what would you say was the sort of key thing or the unique thing about the Amiga? Because obviously it's something over the years that's been hacked, you know, they've been, you know, modified and accelerated and things like that. What would you say was the key thing from the user interaction viewpoint that drew these people to it? Well, um, I I can't say what, what drew, you know, the, everybody's interests were different. So mm-hmm. I can't can't really speak to, you know... I think the the diversity of interests that got brought together was was a real strength. Yeah. Having those three different prongs there, you know, to to really, you know, different different angles from which it was tracked. So it kind of uh uh you know 
created a symbiosis where these people were exchanging ideas and things like that. So I could do a hack. If I'm a programmer, I can do a hack that will help a video guy. You know, a video guy can make a, a promo to promote my software. You know, that, that kind of thing. You end up with these kind of little symbiotic connections. Uh, in, any, in any good community, any good community is going to be diverse. And so it brought a lot of, a lot of diversity of community uh, around the Amiga. Can you repeat the question? So basically, I was just I was thinking more along the lines oh, of yeah, you know, well, user interaction. Well, that as far as this, the the community goes, definitely the user interaction was was built on that diversity, yeah, uh, to to uh, the largest degree. Um, but um, individually, you know, different people come to it different ways. Personally, for me, I had come from the Commodore 64, and I used to hack around and play with Commodore 64s um, before I got into it, before I moved on to the Amiga, and uh, so I learned a little bit of basic programming and got 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 some background in the computers, I guess, before for for the Amiga was there. But uh, I, it gave me enough knowledge to understand that wow, this is really ex- an exceptional an exceptional system, yeah. and 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 get me more involved with it. Um, the uh, but all the but all the Commodore sixty four stuff was you know it, it was text based and everything. So I got a hold of my Amiga, and uh, one of the reasons I you know, sought out the Amiga user group was, man, what is this GUI thing? What is a mouse? What do these icons do? Just working through that first basic exposure to this whole new concept of a graphic user interface yeah. was like, you know, it was it was frustrating me to no end because <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. it it didn't it, you know it didn't connect. There was no previous kind of example of what that was, and it's part of the brilliance of 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 uh, Steve Jobs' marketroid mentality uh, that you know he did a one button mouse and 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 you know kept it as simple as possible for people. Uh, of course, user. Um, User friendly quickly became user handicapping in that environment, but uh, which is why I love the Amiga because you could hack it, you could run it the way you wanted to. And early on, I even explored some of the software where they tried to replace the entire um, uh, workbench system. Uh, there were a couple of hackers in in Canada that uh, that created a product that was basically a, a total GUI uh, replacement. Uh, for it, it didn't work very well. It was buggy as hell. <laughs> quickly, I quickly went back to the workbench, but it was interesting to see people trying to do that anyway. But uh, uh, so everybody, you know, everybody comes at it from their from their own interests and 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 bailiwick. Um, it was definitely worth learning, <laughs> getting past that learning curve. But again, that that that's one of the things that drove me to the community was that you know, I was, what's this what's this whole interface thing? I don't. I don't Mm. And do you think that fed in the GUI fed in with the idea of creative computing as well? Yeah, well, the word is graphic is graphic user interface, yeah. and the graphics of the machine were far superior to anything else at the time, yeah. as far as the capabilities go with the multiprocessor environment, four thousand colors and and uh, um, uh, animation, uh, all those all those things. And coming from the video side of it, uh, graphics was my bailiwick too, because I mean, as a uh, as a high-end video editor, which is what I was doing when I when I came into the Amiga, you know, we had you know uh, character generators and graphics generators and uh, digital effects uh, machines in the analog world uh, that um, that were pretty well reproduced by the uh, Amiga's capabilities, you know. So uh, I, I it, part of my job was being an, an effects and graphics designer in just about every session I sat in on. So um, uh, I, I took that to the Amiga very quickly. 
And the, the coolest thing about my Amiga experience, though, um, was that um, I got to uh, teach at, a, at an art college, the Atlantic College of Art, uh, a fairly renowned, uh, nationally renowned uh, uh, art college. But um, again, the Amiga's exceptional capabilities made it an affordability made it possible for them to start one of the first electronic arts programs in the country. Oh, wow, okay. Okay. And one of the friends who had kind of introduced me to the Amiga um, from the video aspect of it um, uh, was an instructor there, an adjunct instructor. And he was having to move on from it, and so he tapped me to uh, come in and try and, and see if I could uh, replace him. And uh, so we had a lab with uh, several Amiga 1000s, mostly working with the Lux Paint and stuff. And these were all tools that I was very familiar with. So uh, around uh, 1989, uh, maybe early 90, um, uh, I went in and applied. And uh, unfortunately, I've, fortunately, unfortunately, whatever, but my, my life path has never allowed me to pursue any higher education. So I'm going in there with my high school diploma <laughs> to teach a computer class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's an art college, so there's some, some leeway. But, um, uh, but because I knew the machine, because I knew the technology uh, that they were using and the software they were using, um, I ended up uh, getting getting the job and working there as an adjunct, and it was very rewarding stuff. Because um, at the time, you know, there was a whole world out there that that didn't understand a GUI. Yeah, yeah. You know, most of these students in in the early days through the through the early '90s were uh, were were totally clueless as to as to where to start, and uh, it was it was a great uh, great thing to be able to introduce them to the to the whole uh, um, uh, whole world of uh, potential that was there with electronic graphics and the Amiga's graphics com uh, capabilities made that possible and I worked there for several years uh, expanding as they expanded the program uh, we started getting into uh, 3d modeling and animation as well um, and I ended up programming uh, a network to feed a rendering machine uh, uh, a Raptor uh, from the various Amigas that were there, um, and uh, I, it just it was it was it was a great great position to be in, and uh, I really missed it. But eventually, of course, after uh, Amiga went um, or Commodore went out of business, um, they uh, needed to move that lab on uh, to to other capabilities. So I filtered out of that when they when they brought in uh, a, a more um, uh, experienced educator to to run the uh, run the electronic arts program there uh but uh yeah it was it was among the best at the same time on the video side of it i got to run into a lot of artists video art was it made it made electronic video art uh electronic and video art graphics art uh much more accessible uh, and so um one of the things that i was involved with is is uh we would I came, came ran into a group, um, a, a local artists of uh, a, a local, very well respected artists who like to experiment and, and on the forefront of stuff. He was heavily into the Amiga, uh, and he loved it for his uh, uh, his his artwork, and he created a lot of uh, interesting um, multimedia presentations, including like a chair that you could swivel on that would actually track which direction you were looking with a monitor and an Amiga hooked up, so that you could kind of get a three D panoramic view. Uh, through this through this little uh, um, chair that you would sit in, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's still doing that kind of thing, um, but uh, 
he was there, and, and he made arrangements and made connections with the local community TV station, uh, the, uh, um, the public access channel on the, on the cable, and uh, to, to go in and, and do broadcast video art uh, um, uh, on Saturday afternoons. And he got a friend of his named Clark Vreeland, uh, who uh, would track live uh, music to it. He was a very capable musician. Uh, guitar, drums, you name it, he could play it uh, and play it well. And uh, he would come in and track to it. And again, the friend who introduced me to the uh, Atlanta College of Art was also involved with the project. And he brought me in. And I would literally rewire their entire um, uh, uh, control room studio uh, with a little vision mixer uh, and... and uh, uh, and cameras and everything, I would rewire it so that uh, we could sync together about a half dozen or so Amigas, all uh, run through Genlocks, uh, the entire system, because I didn't have money for things like delay lines and, and such, or, you know, um, all the stuff you needed to, to run a TV studio, an analog TV studio. Uh, I actually did the timing by very carefully measuring the cables in between the... Uh, uh, in, in between the various Amigas and so that I, I matched the cable lengths on, on all the video loops so that uh, and cut cables to do that so that I knew exactly how, how long it was between Genlock A and Genlock B and, and could sync it all into the, into the, uh, uh, into the switcher off one, uh, one sync point. Sounds like tomorrow never knows. Yeah, yeah, but it was great for about uh, for about a year and a half. We every other week we'd be in there um, uh, on a Saturday afternoon, and we were broadcasting three hours of abstract video wallpaper uh, track to live music. Uh, you know, and I've got hours and hours and hours of this recorded. <laughs> oh wow, fantastic! So, what would you say? You know, talking about this creative process, what would you say? the computer interaction for sort of creative people was like before the Amiga came along? Obviously, you, you mentioned the Commodore 64, you know, the text-based stuff. How would you describe that sort of, how the Amiga changed things along those lines? I, it was purely, in my view, I think it was, it was just a matter of affordability um, for the capabilities that you had. You had capabilities that started to approach the realm where high-end television, where it's hundreds of thousands of dollars equipment, all you know, generally commercially controlled, um, uh, and you started to um, have the kind of capabilities on the desktop that uh, you know on this afford in this affordable equipment um, that 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 met or surpassed that that really um, uh, high-end expensive uh, equipment and those kinds of tools. Um, and you know that accessibility more than anything else was uh, was the the driver, you know, uh, and opened up creative possibilities that uh, were pretty much endless. I think Atlanta College of Art in in uh, actually you know learned about the Amiga and the possibilities because you know they saw Andy Warhol painting with it, you know, and and when the machine was introduced mm-hmm. at the grand you know. The grand unveiling. So that did have an impact then. Oh yes, it definitely did. Definitely did. It brought yeah, it, it, it brought awareness to that whole arts community, and and to some extent with uh, Deborah Harry there too. You know, doing the, um, the the music community too, that kind of capability. Most of the computers at the time there had computer technology back then, including the Commodore sixty four, had started to open up creativity in the music world with the whole MIDI interface, the standardized a standardized common interface. 
you know, like IP is, um, you know, uh, IP protocols. It, it's standardized computer interface that allowed people to connect their uh, equipment together uh, from different manufacturers and and record uh, uh, their their musical uh, creations uh, in in a digital repeatable form, and uh, and to and to explore that. So a lot of the creative people that I knew were were, were there from the Commodore sixty four uh, thing. I I, I had. Um, uh, friends who tracked professional music, a guy named James Oliverio, and his entire studio was run uh, run with Commodore 64s and Dr. T's sequencers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so MIDI kind of opened it up. In fact, when I went to buy an Amiga, I was actually balancing it against the um, Atari ST because I was a little bit ignorant and I didn't understand how simple MIDI really was. But the Atari ST had MIDI connectors on it, right? And uh, that was one of the areas that I first started exploring uh, creative stuff was, was uh, buying a MIDI keyboard and, and plugging it into my Commodore 64 through an interface and, and tinkering with that. So it was a, it was a big interest. And, then, and now suddenly with the Amiga, you had the visual side of that. So now it wasn't just your ears. You can, you can do it with your eyes and you can get that graphics power and that animation capability and that multimedia uh, sequencing capability uh, um, uh, to come together and open up a whole brand new set of creative avenues. Okay. Now, you mentioned, obviously, the Commodore 64 quite a bit. Now, when you were buying your Amiga, did the fact that it was linked to Commodore have any influence on your purchase of the hardware or... Not really. Um, not really. It was more specifically the uh, uh, the capabilities of the machines, definitely. And what I saw is their video compatibility. Uh, again, a big, big seller for me. Um, the Commodore name was was not there. It was was not an influence to me. Yeah. Okay. And did it feel like a Commodore product? No, not at all. No, not coming from a Commodore sixty four. Uh, the whole Amiga was a, was a radically different machine. You know, it came from a whole different uh, development process, uh, a whole new creative group. Many of the creative group I've, I've gotten to know. Uh, one of the cool things that Amiga Atlanta did is uh, we, uh, we had a, a president at the time uh, named Lamar Morgan, and we called him Lamar the Relentless because he was, he was not a very uh, creatively capable kind of guy. But he just loved the Amiga and loved the potential. He was so excited about it. He actually worked in the financial industry, so he's kind of kind of a straight straight arrow, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, and uh, he, uh, but he loved the Amiga to the point where he wanted to be president of the club and and help organize it. And he was a great organizer, you know. He, he used he, he used his strengths real well. But um, we called him Lamar the Relentless because once he got the names and numbers of the original uh, inventors, mostly through Joe Torre. Uh, <laughs> He he got on the phone and we had and had this grandiose scheme of having an Amiga tenth anniversary. Now we were a little bit late. We did it in early '96. It would have, should have been '95, but by the time we got all the energies together to, to make it happen, uh, that that's when when we were able to pull it off. But we we did build it as a Amiga tenth anniversary show, and uh, Lamar kept uh, hounding uh, all the original programmers and such to uh, to come and come and come and share with us and. Uh, we put together quite an amazing convention as a group. It was a real, real high point of uh, of the whole Amiga Atlanta uh, history. Uh, to, to to get uh, like we had like 
300 attendees. We got, you know, Dale Luck and uh, uh, Carl Sassenrath and, and, and Tim Jennison and, and all these, you know, luminaries from the, from the original group and, and from the community to, to show up. He actually got Stuart Chaffee to host. Now, it turns out Stuart Chaffee may not be a name you know, but, but Stuart Chaffee ran a, a program called Computer Chronicles. Yep. From the early 80s on PBS up until like uh, uh, the end of the 90s. Around about 2003. 2003. Because so a, lo- a lot of them are on YouTube now. Because, okay, so it was more than, so it was like 20 years this guy did that. But Stuart Chaffee, who appreciated computers, of course, really, really appreciated the Amiga. And uh, he, he, he thought it was just the you know best things in sliced bread. So he, in his in his program, even though Amiga didn't have the marketing and commercial push that uh, uh, the other the other brands enjoyed, um, it, it he frequently highlighted it on his on his program. And he brought clips of, of various uh, Amiga presentations over the years when he when he came to the to the show. But he actually hosted our our tenth anniversary event and was thrilled to do so. Uh, we got some, Lamar got some local coverage out of CNN, got the governor to make a de- declaration of Amiga Computer Day in the state. And <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it was just, yeah, it, it was, it was, by the time I got to the Amiga 30th uh, convention, it was uh, old hat. I'd, oh, I'd been there, done that before. <laughs> 20 years. Uh, <laughs> 20 years earlier and, 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 and actually uh, organized, you know, uh, organized. It was an incredible, incredible feat to pull off, but um, I, I think it was very appreciated by uh, all all the community. Well, I think it's interesting as well, because obviously, you know, Commodore went bust 94, and you're still doing this in 96. Yes. It, so I find that very interesting as well. well. Yeah. Well, the timeline is actually... Commodore was on its way out in 93. Um, I got to attend. Uh, Joe Torre got me to be, uh, or showed me how to sign up to be a developer, an Amiga developer. And even though I was never much of a uh, serious programmer, um, I loved the technology and I loved learning about it. And so I, I went to a couple of developer conferences. The... Um, in 1990, the Amiga Developer Conference was actually in Atlanta, and Bob Castro and I prepared a couple of videos for that uh, that we uh, distributed there, uh, just basically you know, highlight a big uh, uh, Amiga promos uh, promo piece. Um, I should probably put that online because it was kind of kind of well done. We used all our professional video equipment that we had access to where we both worked together, and uh, and, and put together a very nice uh, uh, little demo of, of um, Amiga software and and Amiga features. Just a, a little music video piece, but I should dig it up and see if I can get a get a clean copy off of the videotapes that I have before they all fall apart. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what what are your memories and stories of the years after Commodore went bust? Oh, I remember everybody really being anxious to to see uh, a new Commodore, see that see new not a new Commodore, see a new Amiga, and see somebody pick up that technology and run with it. And uh, so there was a lot of flag waving that went on for uh, several years, Uh, not just our convention, but 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 elsewhere. Um, The we wanted to see it happen. We were, I, I remember a special uh, amount of excitement when Gateway picked it up because it was something local, it was something U.S. They were a successful um, uh, PC manufacturer, uh, PC assembler. Uh, um, they had a name. They had storefronts. Uh, so there was, there was a real, real optimism with that. Uh, and the um, 
and the head of, of Gateway, uh, in his messages that I saw at Amiga conventions like in St. Louis and stuff, um, seemed to kind of get the idea, you know. And his biggest complaint was, you know, that, that you know, the Amiga just kind of worked. You just turn it on and, and you were, you're up and running. Mm-hmm. You know, even even though that was Mac's claim to fame, uh, it wasn't necessarily true with the Mac. Yeah. Uh, but with the Amiga, it was very much, it was, you know, boom. I want to run a game. And, well, you got to do this, you got to install that, you got to get past the DRM, you got to get to, you know. No. I just want to play a game with my kids. And when I went to do that on the PC, you know, uh, it was like, I wasted hours and, and we didn't ever get to play the game. Yeah. And when I did it with an Amiga, it was like I plugged it in there and we had a game on the TV screen. Let's go. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, he, he, seemed, he seemed to get it. But uh, I, 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 knowing Joe, uh, being a close friend of Joe's and, uh, um, and knowing and, and talking to him about his time at, at Gateway, um, you know, I kind of understand the they weren't really willing to put the full weight of it behind. We had a great convention, though. Uh, was it? It may have been. I'm pretty sure it was the the yeah. It was the St. Louis convention. Not only was the head of Gateway there, but there was a uh, a couple other um, uh, the head of uh, their technology department who had been put in charge of the Amiga, and he was a very flamboyant, more uh, as much a a a, <laughs> a marketing personality as as as. Uh, as as a tech, technical guy, but he was just all excited about pushing the pushing the Amiga, and uh, um, but he he floundered and, and kind of went uh, fell by the wrong side of the uh, of the head of Gateway, and and so I'm glad I can't remember the names because I shouldn't be t- telling the story. <laughs> <laughs> but some something in his personal uh, a- a- activities uh, um, really turned him off to the. Had a had a gateway, and he was part of the reason I think that the the gateway uh, program collapses. It, it, it the the guy who was tagged to you know head up the head up the effort kind of fell by the wayside. Wow, and what year was this? Uh, this would have been in the neighborhood of ninety uh, six and ninety seven. Okay, yeah. so yeah, it probably would have been more ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. I'd have to look back, and, and I went to so many Amiga conventions, it's hard to filter them in my head anymore. Yeah, pretty sure that, that was the Saint. That was the St. Louis convention that would uh, that happened uh, uh, later on, when we were, when there was a lot of energy to try and revive it. Mm. So, how many conventions did you go to overall then? Oh, uh, let's see. Well, including the two developers conferences that I went to, um, I probably did five or six conventions. But at least once a year, I was going off to one convention or another. Oh, wow. Cincinnati um, again, St. Louis. Um, I'm trying to remember where they all were. Most all of them involved some kind of road trip, and we and we had a small cadre of people that would go off to those things. Uh, Robert Hamilton is a Amiga, a, a, a graphics artist and art teacher uh, at Spelman College here in in Georgia, and uh, he make, made these great T-shirts and stuff. And so he'd be in the van with his boxes of Amiga T-shirts, uh, uh, going off to the conventions, and and uh, a guy who worked uh, doing computer repair was just an avid avid. Uh, well, I actually did, did uh, copier repair. Um, but, uh, he was, he was great to have along. Uh, he was a, he was a karate fan. So every time we'd drive by the, uh, old waffle house, he was waffle house! give us the Bruce Lee version. <laughs> I remember that one driving a load of Amigas to the Amiga 30 conference, but yeah. <laughs> waffle house! 
But that's where that originated. It was, it was, it was, it was traveling with him. Uh, Joe Torrey would sometimes be with us. Um, uh, but we had a, we had a small small cadre popping a van. Uh, Rick Longenecker uh, went along a couple times, and we get off to these Amiga conventions just to have a grand old time. I uh, I I uh, am an organizer, and so I would organize a a party, and I I um, I became rather infamous at a couple of conventions for having the party room. Yeah, what was the number of that again? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's 104. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think I would try to get room 104. Yeah, on the on the first floor in a corner where you're not uh, too, you don't have too many neighbors, and then the, and that's where we'd have the Amiga parties, <laughs> the after hours time. Well, there we go. Yeah, I just I'd have to I have to mull it over for a while to remember all the places and, and conventions that we did, but there was uh, there was always interesting characters there. There was the character who uh, drove the DeLorean. Who was 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 uh, was promising to uh, um, revive a, a, a lot of Amiga technology and was going to hire Dave Haney, and uh, <laughs> and, and uh, he claimed to have all his family money to do this and, and everything. He was just going to throw money at it and um, uh, <laughs> drove a DeLorean. <laughs> he, but he was a big self promoter and and uh, and it turned out that everything about him was pretty much a fraud. <laughs> Well, didn't you say that his mother was involved in the previous account of the story that you gave? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, his mother was there, and she was, she had kind of this um, uh, uh, princess or, or royalty kind of kind of air about her that she that she was she was uh, <laughs> she was she was some kind of duke or duchess from somewhere. And the... oh yeah, oh she was a duke. It was his dad. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was yeah, yeah you know, but she was some kind of duchess or or, or, or princess from some. Uh, uh, Tiny European uh, aristocracy. <laughs> oh yeah, Arkansas, somewhere like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, uh, but uh, he snowed Dave Haney, and Dave Haney tried to get involved with him for a little while, but uh, but quickly uh, the the fraud of it uh, became apparent. So, but he was going to have Dave Haney to help him develop the next Amiga, and he was going to put it out there. But it was pie in the kind of kind of stuff. Um, but you know, a lot of people were ready to, you know, were ready to back anything, any any opportunity to keep this uh, keep this wonderful, you know, um, uh, creative tool going. Yeah. Mm. And how long were you using your Amigas after you kind of knew that there wasn't going to be anything new in the way that you wanted it to be? Well, actually, the um, uh, the video toaster developed quite a intense community around it mm. uh, uh, because of Arex. And the Arex control of it, Arex was my was one of the things that really kept me with Amiga forever. I really loved to program in Arex. I could do all kinds of utilities for my software in Arex. Um, you know, William Hawes is a god, uh, though you can't find him anymore anymore. Um, apparently, Commodore, the co- company, screwed him over very badly with his contract for that uh, for that communications language that opened up all kinds of. Uh, uh, capabilities for all this different these different creative tools to talk to each other and to be able to control them and automate them and things like that. Arex was critical to the whole uh, uh, I know Arex was critical to the whole Olympics uh, presentation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, in fact uh, my nickname is Arex Aaron, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, spelled with two ways though, of course. So for anybody that's not in the Amiga community Explain Arex. Arex is an, is a uh, port of a Unix 
uh, interprocess communication language called Rex. It was used very heavily in the banking industry in the in the Unix number cruncher machines and stuff, and allowed uh, um, uh, allowed you to uh, talk to and control uh, different um, uh, different programs. Uh, it's kind of like middleware almost, uh, it, it's kind of like a communication channel uh, outside of networking on on, on individual systems. Um, uh, William Hawes uh, did a port of the basic structure of it um, uh, to the Amiga uh, because he had a true multitasking message-based <laughs> priority preemptive operating system. Uh, he he um, uh, he created a way for any programmer, anybody writing a commercial program or a non-commercial program, uh, any kind of program, to to put a simple communications port on there. Basically, give it a telephone line. And and then using the AREX engine, uh, AREX programming language, you could control the communications flowing back and forth between the different applications on the system. Okay. Okay. So most programs allowed you to write macros in that. My favorite, Cygnus Ed text editor. I wrote all kinds of great macros in AREX because that was the port that they used to tell, you know, to send communications to it. So you'd, you'd have your program and you'd have your AREX port, and within your program you'd have certain messages that were recognized through the AREX port, like, you know, draw, draw left 20, you know, simple instructions. And AREX would send those instructions from a program to there, so you could automate things like drawing a graph on a screen on a graphics on Deluxe Paint with you know uh, with AREX. Mm-hmm. Um, though I don't recall if Deluxe Paint ever really put a proper AREX port on. I shouldn't have said that that way, but you know you get the idea. I know I know I know there were pre programs that did, did have AREX ports that, that would allow you to uh, you know draw graphics elect, uh, uh, programmatically and things like that. Um, so just an incredible power, and I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, again, huge learning curve. I didn't really understand uh, what the power of this was um, uh, initially, and it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around the way it worked. Yeah. But uh, uh, once I did, uh, I had a lot of fun with it. And I actually, but anyway, I started off by talking about the toaster community being really huge mm. um, and, and, and very active. And it was such a successful product. There were thousands of them out there. There were, so there was market for it. And a bunch of third parties um, uh, got on board with it. Tim Jennison was very open about, you know, third party uh, support of, of, of the thing, of, of, the, of the technology. And so even after uh, Commodore folded, uh, the, there were thousands of toasters out there and people who were using them still and were going to use them for a number of years years hence. Um, so uh, there was a particularly strong small group of, of third-party programmers who wrote extensions for it. And um, and a lot of those extensions were done just with AREX. And when I learned that, the oh, well, he's just using AREX, well, I can do AREX. And so I um, actually ended up developing... Uh, some products for the video toaster market um, in the late 90s, uh, you know, uh, five years after uh, uh, Commodore's out of business. Wow. You know, uh, it wasn't a very brilliant move. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a good business plan, a good business model, but it was what I loved and uh, my passion for it made, made it a lot of fun. And so one of the things the Amiga Toaster was lacking that I saw in more modern, you know, Johnny-come-lately uh, um, video high-end uh, 
nonlinear editing systems was a way to get your me media in. And at the time, most of your media was uh, still on videotape. And so um, uh, there were, there were, everybody had their own kind of methods worked out. Uh, the uh, hard drives were expensive though, so you couldn't just put your project on a hard drive and then put the hard drive away. Though there was one developer who actually did it did his work that way. Uh, he'd buy these expensive uh, <laughs> hard drives, format them for the flyer, and and uh, and take it and uh, um, and put them on the shelf in case the client ever called back with changes. Uh, but but yeah, well that's dedication. But but it was uh, you know, but he was also working at a level that he could charge the kind of price to just roll that into into his costs. But that aside. Um, uh, I went and, and pursued that, and I was interested in machine control. So I wrote a little, I had a friend of mine, a, an early Amiga developer named Mark Adams, and uh, he wrote uh, Cyclops and as an early, one of the first Amiga 1000 games, um, and he developed a couple of other interesting things, uh, uh, an infrared interface uh, to use the Amiga to, you know, uh, control infrared devices. Um, and it could read the read the control codes in, and you could you know uh, basically turn your Amiga into any kind of infrared controller you wanted it to be. Uh, he wrote the Mindlight. He created the Mindlight, which is a hardware software combination that allowed you to uh, uh, basically uh, do do visualizations of uh, of music directly on the Amiga screen as it was of live music as it was coming in. Oh, wow. uh, so really, really. Really a genius, both, uh, you know, uh, he was an electronics uh, uh, professional, and then uh, the software came naturally to him. But he was a friend of mine through the Amiga community here, and uh, my big nail with trying to get um, uh, my product to work was, was I needed a simple methodology of um, getting my AREX commands to a serial port, okay? And... Um, he wrote a little tiny program for me. I mean, it couldn't have been more than 20 lines. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, couldn't have been more than 20 lines, but it, it was called Cerex. And I helped him, you know, I, I told him the specification of the design I wanted. I needed a wraparound buffer because I needed to be able to take the information coming in very quickly from these machines and on a, on a, on a good old, you know, uh, 7 megahertz Amiga bus. <laughs> Be able to, to process this uh, 384 uh, or yeah 384 baud uh, information coming in and have it respond very quickly to be able to turn around and, and on a frame by frame video basis you know have it processed by AREX which is a uh, an interpreted uh, uh, language so uh, there's more lag there anyway make it all work he wrote a little program called Cerex and it was the the doorway to me just being able to control videotape machines and and be able to have people create lists of of time code numbers from the from the uh, um, from the from their footage and have the flyer only capture those parts that they were actually going to use and just save disk space and, and go for that so it automated the the input process and uh, I think I sold a couple hundred copies of it uh, before it was done, uh, we tried to expand it with a couple other serial control devices, so you could actually. Uh, um, he he made a serial box for me. I, uh, Mark did um, that would actually switch between um, the multiple machines off one serial port, just by changing a couple flags in the serial output. So you could redirect to several machines, but I I never got quite as far as making that an actual video editing system in itself. So, 
if you had one memory that stood out from your days of using, working with, being around Amigas, what would that be? Uh, just the whole experience was just very rewarding for me. I mean, um, all the, there's so many, I got to meet so many great people and so many brilliant people, uh, um, inventive people, creative people, and in in that from the Amiga, I mean, it just. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's the overall experience is. I mean, there's no, it's no differentiating moment that's that or or memory that's any stronger than any other. Um, I guess overall in the in the experience, my opportunity to be a instructor at the Atlanta College of Art was definitely the most rewarding hat I've gotten to wear as a as a freelancer as a as a as a computer um, uh, person and in, in being able to share what I knew with these fairly novice people and really open them up to a whole new creative world that was really the that was really the best part of the of that whole time is being able to give back and to share and expand people's horizons okay thank you for your time Aaron this has been wonderful thank you I would like to thank Aaron for both his time and his insights it felt like gaining access to a little forgotten pocket of computing history also videoscape 3d and Aegis model of 3d were precursors to lightwave computer chronicles also ended in 2002 so I was close anyway Overall, I would say that Aaron spoke volumes about the idea of creative computing, which, having spoken to some of the original developers of the Amiga computer, was very much on their mind. Growing the use of computers beyond what Howard Rheingold has called the cathedrals of mainframes and things like that, where, you know, it was very much an industrial tool to putting computers into the hands of artists and anybody that just wants to do anything creative with a computer. The Remotely Interested podcast is listener-supported. If you would like to advertise on the show, contact me at contact at remotely-interested.com. Also, why not spread the word on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you want to do, make people aware of the podcast. <laughs>